PM board bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast, where board studying is now more enjoyable. My name is Blake Briggs, the co-host and co-founder for EM Board Bombs. I am not joined today by Dr. Hussein, unfortunately. Dr. Hussein is actually taking an online Zoom course, you know, can't do anything in person right now because of COVID-19. So he's taking online Zoom college courses. Uh, Currently, he's taking the one on surviving the zombie apocalypse, how COVID-19 has prepared us. He said it's pretty good, pretty enlightening. Um, He's really into that stuff, so... I kind of let him do his thing, and uh, I said I would record this podcast on my own today. For each 15-20 minute episode, you gain high-yield board knowledge. As we like to say, come for the stems, stay for the content. You can sign up on our website for free updates and episodes, printed handouts, free review quizzes to test your knowledge on topics. And you can go to our website for all this stuff, all this free stuff, at emboardbombs.com. And that is emboardbombs.com. And also, we're on Twitter and Instagram, at emboardbombs. Let's jump into today's topic. Um, this will be a really interesting one. It's common, pretty frequent, things we see in the ED, and unfortunately there's a lot of myths surrounding it. So we have a 27-year-old male presenting to the ED with sudden onset of flank pain and dysuria. At first, the patient doesn't really want to come to the ED and doesn't really want to provide many details about his condition. He states he had left flank pain that began suddenly. He said it's never occurred before. He's been social distancing at home due to coronavirus, hashtag pandemic. And he did not wish to come to the ED. However, after pressing him further with questions, the patient shamefully admits that he was at a friend's house and they were hosting a Kid Rock concert via Zoom. And he also states he goes to UNC. (laughs) When you tell him you need a urine sample, he replies, does this mean I am Kid Rock? Which of the following is true? Choice A, flank tenderness is a reliable sign on the physical exam. Choice B, NSAIDs are contraindicated as pain medications in this condition. Choice C, AKI is a rare complication. Choice D, IV hydration assists in stone passage. Correct answer here is going to be choice C, AKI is a rare complication. Bet you didn't see that one coming, right? Those were some tough choices, uh, but we're going to sort it out today. We're going to do a brief presentation here on kidney stones. There's a very nice handout that's supplemental that comes with this podcast, and it's already on the website at EM Board Bombs. If you scroll down to the handout section, it'll be near the bottom of the page. But kidney stones are, are quite common. Um, as ED providers, we see them quite a lot. They're common causes of abdominal pain, usually in younger patients, from 20 to 40 or 50 years old, something like that. It's not that common in older patients above 65, but it can happen. The overall total prevalence of these things uh, is about 5%, and that's pretty common. Um, You know, we're going to see these things a few times a month if you're a regular ED provider. So the patients will often present with flank pain and some urinary symptoms, but you'll soon find out that that's not very reliable, uh, which is quite interesting uh, in terms of your workup and in terms of sometimes being a sneakier diagnosis than we once thought. They're a significant source of morbidity and they impair quality of life, uh, and they can have far-reaching renal complications. So Typically on the boards, they're not going to care too much about the pathophysiology. Just know here that 80% of stones are some sort of calcium stone. Oxalate is usually more common than phosphate, but that's it. I would not know anything else about the other stones. Uh, You'll never get asked those questions. And in the ED, it doesn't matter what type of stone it is, except for struvite stones or staghorn calculi, which are highly complicating stones because they have a high infection rate. 
So when it comes to risk factors, same deal here. I wouldn't learn anything about what you learned in med school, which was, hey, is it you know high urinary calcium levels or high oxalate levels? All that stuff. I've kind of listed half of them now. <laughs> so I defeated the purpose of not talking about it. Um, I just talked about it. <laughs> anything uh, that increases supersaturation is the major risk factor here. That's all you need to know about. They're never going to ask you on your boards now of what the you know actual electrolyte changes or metabolic changes are to cause kidney stones. You have to know the global risk factors though. So the number one risk factor for anything in this world in medicine is it happened before. <laughs> so if you have prior nephrolithiasis, your reoccurrence rate at one year is 15%. Get this, at 10 years, you have a 50% reoccurrence rate. So half of patients will have a repeat kidney stone in 10 years. So this actually is important because when patients do come in and they say, hey, my pain's really similar, to a kidney stone I had about a year ago or two years ago, I would take their word for that. Now, of course, you can't just hang your hat on that and be done, but I would take their word of saying, okay, they've had three kidney stones before or something, now it's their fifth kidney stone. We'll come to this later when it comes to workup because not all those patients need a CT, but we'll get to that in a minute. Family history makes you two times, two times increased risk for stones. Bariatric surgery, this comes up a lot as well as short bowel syndrome and Crohn's disease. And the interesting part about this is because there's a higher rate of oxalate absorption of the GI tract, and therefore oxalate is really the biggest risk factor for forming calcium oxalate stones. So certain medications can also cause kidney stones, indenivir, um, acyclovir, two antiviral agents, the, the former indenivir being an HIV antiretroviral agent. Metabolic diseases such as gout, obesity, uh, diabetes, hypertension, those are all risk factors for stone formation. The first one, gout, being of course a risk for uric acid stones, obviously. The symptoms of nephrothiasis, they develop when the stone moves out of the renal pelvis. So kidney stones in the kidney don't cause any symptoms. Patients think they do. They'll always come in. They think, oh my gosh, I, my doctor told me I had five stones one time sitting in my kidney. But in general, you know, reassurance is needed when you tell patients that, hey, you do have a few stones in your kidney, but this is not the reason you're coming in with your pain today if there's no other stones elsewhere. Colicky pain is quite classic, and this is the type of pain that waxes and wanes. It's found in the flank. It usually radiates to the groin in these patients. And the episodes of pain typically last several minutes to an hour. Patients can't lie still. They're constantly writhing in bed. They are constantly sitting up or laying down or lying on their side. This is completely different from peritonitis where patients are laying flat on the bed and they don't want to move at all. And if you move the bed or touch them in their belly, they wince in pain. These patients, you know, they wince in pain when you palpate the affected area, but they're not peritonitic at all. The pain immediately resolves when the stone passes. Uh, it's quite a remarkable change. The exam is usually unreliable. Um, that's what choice A was saying, that flank tenderness uh, is a reliable sign. It's only about 50% of patients that have CVA tenderness. Uh, hematuria is also unreliable. Gross hematuria is only about 30% of patients. Microscopic hematuria, however, is quite common. Uh, it's about 85% of patients. So that's why we get these urine studies, partly to look for infection and partly to look for actual blood in the urine to say, okay, well, there could be a kidney stone. So if you have hematuria with flank pain, it's strongly suggestive of nephrolithiasis. It's specific, but it's poorly sensitive, right? We just said that it's not that common. Uh, so if it's absent, you could still have a kidney stone. Hematuria is much more present early on. Like 95% of patients have hematuria on the first day. But later on, like a couple days later, only about 60%. So it's not that helpful later on. Thankfully, most patients, if they've never had a kidney stone before, will come to the ED, you know, within the first 24 hours. And so it is helpful to get that urine right away, and you can see the hematuria uh, on the microscopic urine analysis. Other symptoms are in no particular order. Uh, nausea and vomiting in about half of patients. Uh, dysuria, I don't really have a good percentage on that. I didn't find any sources telling us how common dysuria was. 
complications from stones, just a general overview here. We all know post-obstructive kidney damage is one of the biggest risk factors. This leads to hydronephrosis, and then you have resulting laboratory abnormalities like rising creatinine, rising BUN, that sort of thing. Untreated nephrolysis can lead to, of course, chronic kidney disease and further end-stage adrenal disease. The diagnosis of nephrolysis, it's a similar boat as appendicitis. You know, there's an easy test for it. You know, CT is mostly definitive for the most part, you know, greater than 95% accurate. So it's a very good test. But the dilemma as we as providers run into is that we can't CT everyone, right? I mean, people think they can, but <laughs> those people and I are not friends. Uh, in general, as your job as a provider in this modern age of CT is deciding who does need the CT scan. There are consequences to ordering CT scans on everyone that comes in the emergency department. As much as I like to tell certain people that I know that love to order CT scans all the time, um, there's a good place for CT scans and there's a bad place for CT scans. So in general, it's more of a discussion of when can we do the CT and when, can, when do we don't have to. If it's a first-time kidney stone, the CT scan is the best test and you should be getting it. it CT of the abdomen and pelvis is the best preferred test for patients presenting with the first time with symptoms concerning for nephrolysis. The test is actually done without contrast, and, and the reason is that the contrast can actually hide kidney stones. Now, one of the big myths here is that you can never do IV contrast. Um, IV contrast actually does decrease sensitivity for small stones. It's true. However, the real big secret here is that you can detect stones greater than three millimeters with contrast. So a contrast CT is about 95% sensitive, which isn't bad. It's not bad at all. A CT of the abdomen and pelvis without contrast is 94% sensitive and 97% specific. So they're really about even when looking for stones greater than three millimeters. Modern CT scans are just so darn good now, they can actually detect signs of urinary tract obstruction. They can detect hydronephrosis, they detect hydroureter with detailed measurements. Uh, they even detect densities on more modern scanners. It's pretty remarkable. We live in an age right now of very, very good CT scans compared to uh, back in the day when my dad started practicing. Urinal dilation is also found on CT scans. It's pretty darn good. Early on, it's only about 90%, but at eight hours after kidney stone presentation, urinal dilation is in like 100% of patients. It's like 97%. It's crazy. And perinephric stranding is found in about 30% of patients. Let's talk about ultrasound. So ultrasound of the kidneys and bladder, it's the preferred initial test in pregnant patients on the boards. It's a classic board question. However, the test is really not that good at all. Um, I was amazed to read how bad it is. So it's, it's sensitivity and specificity, detecting signs of nephrolysis. So that's like hydronephrosis, hydroureter is like 70 to 75%, which is even lower than I thought it was. <laughs> I thought hydroureter and hydronephrosis isn't that hard to find, but I guess uh, depending on operator error and grading hydronephrosis, which is highly subjective, um, that's really not that good. Uh, yikes. Stone detection is even worse. If you try to find a stone on ultrasound, it's like flipping a coin. <laughs> it literally is. It's 55% at best for both EM doctors and radiologists. How awful. What about x-rays? Don't even bother. Um, I can't believe we're talking about this. Who is still getting x-rays for kidney stones? Uh, abdominal plane films, they don't show hydronephrosis. They don't show hydroureter. It's a mixed bag. They range from a miserable 30% accuracy to 60%. <laughs> Just awful. Why waste your time shooting an x-ray with a little bit of radiation? And just, if you're really worried, just go do a CT. It's the same thing with a small bowel obstruction. Why are we still doing x-rays on these people? If they've never had this presentation before, it could be something else. CT scan. 
We don't shoot plain films for nephrothysis at our institution. Um, I don't recommend it either. Radiolucent stones are often missed, of course, on x-ray too. So then you have to ask yourself, why, why are you getting this? Stones less than five millimeters are often missed too. I could go on about how dumb this is, but I can't believe I'm wasting my breath on plain films for kidney stones. There's a lot of talk out there regarding ultrasound first, followed by CT without contrast. The boards really, really want you to get a CT without contrast. That's the answer. Um, so I know I did my whole speech right here about how the CT with contrast isn't the end of the world. And in fact, if you're doing a scan on a patient, this comes up a lot when I'm talking to interns or med students, and they're really worried about other things that are causing abdominal pain, which is the right call, right? You should have always a good differential for these patients coming in with abdominal pain. And you're just not sold that it's a kidney stone. Let's say they have a variable picture where they don't have any blood in their urine, uh, they don't have any urinary symptoms, and they have variable flank pain. It's not that helpful. And you want to keep kidney stones on the differential, but you want to make sure they don't have appendicitis or some other major problem. CT with contrast isn't the bad idea, but on the test question or on a patient that's pretty obvious that it's pointing toward nephrolithiasis, the CT without contrast is the right call. That's a better test, and that's the answer on the boards. So management of these patients. What are we doing? We talked about the CT scan. We talked about the urine analysis. You should also get a BMP um, and basically electrolyte panel. You're looking for changes in electrolytes and creatinine. AKI is super rare. That's why the answer was correct today, that AKI is a rare complication. It's only found in about 1% or 2% of all stone patients. So as much as we talk about it, it's super rare. Urine studies should also be performed, as we talked about, not only for looking for blood, but the presence of an infection. When we talk about pain control, the best initial pain control is going to be IV Toradol, which is a brand name, but uh, generic is Ketorolac or Ketorolac, depending on what region of North America you're from. In Canada, I believe they say uh, Ketorolac, but I'm not sure. No judgment. That's our initial pain medication. We usually give that IV. It's thought some weird little crazy academic theory. NSAIDs reduce urinal smooth muscle tone. We don't really care if this is true or not, but man, that sounds awesome when you're trying to explain it to a patient. <laughs> Like, oh yeah, the, the Ketorolac goes in and it actually relaxes the urinal smooth muscle and allows the stone to slip on through. That sounds perfect. We love NSAIDs uh, when able to for pain compared to IV opioids or oral opioids. Some patients will require opioids though if they have significant pain or they've already tried NSAIDs and they didn't work. And that of course will leave pain control up to the provider in the situation that you're in. Forced IV hydration, which was one of the answer choices, is a complete myth. Giving the patient IV fluids does not reduce the amount of pain medication. It doesn't increase stone passage, so don't overload fluid in patients. It's a waste of time. Don't do it. So when we're talking about actually passage of the stone, this comes up a lot with patients. It comes up a lot with consulting with urology. The size is the biggest determinant. This is a board question answer. Less than two millimeters size of stone is a little baby stone. Um, it still causes pain. <laughs> the average stone passage is about seven days for that. Three percent of those patients will need intervention. The four to six millimeter size, this is where it gets kind of tricky. These patients have an average stone passage of like two weeks and 50% need intervention. So half of the patients at five millimeter on average stone size. So think about that five millimeter stone, 50%. So five and five, five millimeter stone size, 50% need intervention. If you're greater than six millimeters, just forget about it. 99% will need intervention. These do not pass on their own. Reach out early on for urology. Location is actually also important too. The proximal ureter has about a 50% chance of passage, so it's very high up, you know, close to the kidney, renal, pelvis, versus the UVJ, the ureterovesicular junction, that is an 80% chance of passage. So, of course, you know, you can't, you have to correlate these a little bit, do the numbers in your head of, okay, I got a two millimeter stone at the UVJ, wow, that's going to pass within a few days probably, right? 
or I have a five millimeter stone that's up right by the renal pelvis. Uh, you know, the, the numbers are already saying it's 50% need intervention. I bet it's a lot lower because, you know, it's up by the renal pelvis, that sort of thing. So think about those numbers ahead of time. You don't need to memorize these at all. You do need to, I would recommend knowing the stone sizes. You need to know that a five millimeter stone, 50% chance of passage, anything lower than two millimeters will nearly 100% pass on their own. You need to know those numbers for your own practice. It's good to know those when you're talking with your consultants. So when do we call urology and also who needs admission? The answers are actually the same for both. The obvious answer is that, of course, you're going to call somebody for an admission or urology is any stone with an AKI, obviously, any anuria, so that's really concerning if they're not making any urine because of stone blockage, any clinical evidence of urosepsis will obviously be admitted, unyielding pain or nausea and vomiting after multiple IV medication attempts, a single kidney or a transplant kidney with signs of obstruction. So let's go through this one more time. The obvious ones, let's put in one category because any moron <laughs> would know this, AKI, anuria, urosepsis and then single kidney or transplant kidney with obstruction. That's pretty obvious. The other category, which may not be obvious, is the unyielding pain or nausea and vomiting after multiple IV nausea and pain medication attempts. The most concerning findings in a patient with a kidney stone is not AKI. We talked about how rare that was. It's actually urosepsis. These patients need rapid IV antibiotics, IV fluids. It's a septic patient, code sepsis, and an urgent urology consult. Remember that whenever we have an infection that has an obvious source, you need to get rid of the source. Urgent urology consult, need to decompress, put a urinal stent in, nephrostomy tube in, hopefully improve the patient's care. So who needs outpatient urology? We've kind of already hinted on this, but any patients with continued pain, confirmed stone, should have your outpatient urology follow-up. Basically, anybody that has a stone, I give them a urology number. Um, you shouldn't restrict patients from following up with a specialist in this case. You advise patients to strain their urine, uh, and they can follow up with urology. And, and sometimes, you know, depending on the stone size, if it's less than two millimeters, um, you can debate calling urology. I'll leave that up to your institution and how your urologists are. If it's five millimeters or above, I'm calling a urologist in the ED, and I'm saying, hey, this is a stone. Hey, they look fine otherwise. They don't have any of the red flags we just talked about, and they're going home, but this guy's not going to pass this stone. You're going to need to see him kind of thing, um, and, and people do. What about Tamsulosin? I save this one for the end, uh, the alpha blocker. It's been used for years uh, for, quote-unquote, facilitating stone passage with stones 5 to 10 millimeters in diameter. Um, the drugs come under question uh, the past couple of years. I think about two years ago, some pretty big landmark studies came out saying uh, it sucks. <laughs> it doesn't really truly help with stone passage. Right now, urology still likes it. Uh, EM is pretty ambivalent or against it. As usual, this is what I love about emergency medicine. We just love questioning everything that people do. <laughs> um, so we don't like doing things that are a waste of time or that don't change management. And that's what I love about emergency medicine. And this is one of those examples. What we don't really advise prescribing it unless urology wants it, and th that's up to them because they're following up, and that would be a discussion with your specialist. Uh, we're not going to get involved with that. But in general, we're not handing this out for fun uh, for patients uh, that have kidney stones. All right, I hate to have to do a bonus bomb without Dr. Hussain, uh, but let's go and do it. Now it's time for a bonus bomb. <laughs> So finishing up today with a quick pearl here, I thought this was really, really interesting. You know, I often think in the ED when I'm seeing these kidney stone patients that have recurrent nephrothiasis of saying, you know, am I going to CT or not CT? That's the big question here among recurrent nephrothiasis. Really fascinating. They did a, a one study of 230 patients undergoing CT for, quote, recurrent stone symptoms. Guess how many had no change in diagnosis? Well, of course, as we would all suspect, greater than, 
80%, about 85% of them had no change in diagnosis. 12% had non-urgent change in diagnosis, like it wasn't a kidney stone, but it was something that wasn't that bad either, and they could have follow-up or they were admitted, but nothing bad happened to them. 7% had a diagnosis other than nephrothiasis that required urgent intervention. Guess which one was the most common? I can hear Dr. O'Brien yelling at me from across the city. Appendicitis was the most common mimicker. Remember that. If you haven't listened to Appendicitis podcast or read our handout, go to our website and go to SoundCloud or iTunes. Uh, we had a really good episode about three weeks ago about appendicitis. 7% is an unacceptable number to not scan patients with, quote, recurrent stone symptoms. So if you have a patient that comes in with a concerning exam and they're older or they have other comorbidities, we simply cannot safely excuse patient symptoms for just nephrothiasis so they've had it before. So in general, you know, we treat patients' workups as case by case. Just the other day, I had about a 20-year-old or so, something like that, in the 20s, and she had a history of nephrothiasis. Uh, she had a completely virgin abdomen. She had never had surgery before, and she had kidney stones before, I think twice before. It's her third time coming in about a year later. The symptoms were exactly like that. Her urine showed blood. She had flank tenderness. It was on the left side as well, not on the right side. That's important. Um, and she followed up with urology, I think, a few days later and had a spontaneous passing of a stone. So ultrasound can really help in these cases. They can decrease CT frequency. But again, case-by-case -case basis, remember that we can't just not CT patients that have recurrent nephrothiasis. But also, I would say on the flip side, we don't have to CT every one of these patients with recurrent nephrothiasis as well. So keep that in mind. All right. I think that was a really good, thorough episode. Really enjoyed that. That's another bomb delivered. Remember, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is EMBoardBombs, at EMBoardBombs on Instagram as well. Please drop us an app review. These reviews really help us. They boost our ratings. Please help us get in the top 10 of emergency medicine podcasts. We're already in the top 20. So let's keep moving forward and get up in the top there. We'll see you next time for more action. Hopefully, Dr. Hussain will be back with us, and he'll tell us what he learned from his college course. Thanks again. See you.